0: Father, we do give you thanks uh, for your generosity to us. We are so blessed here in America. uh, The freedom to gather even now. We know some of our brothers and sisters don't have that freedom in other parts of the world. We pray that you'd meet us today through your body, through the preaching of your word. God, thank you for the fellowship that we can share as Christians here on earth. I pray that you would minister to us as we Look towards Christmas as we celebrate your birthday, Jesus. Help us remember what it's all about. And we're thankful uh, for Tim. And pray for him as he proclaims your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Travis. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, my name is Tim Pollock, and I'm the small group director here at Good News. And a special shout-out to everybody who wore the red and black flannel today. I see a lot of that, good job. Hey, I am uh, really excited to bring you the word this morning. Um, So 10 years ago, back in January, we started the book of Genesis. And today is the final chapter. Uh, But before we dig into chapter 50, I thought it would be helpful to look back first. And I wanna summarize the book of Genesis by calling on, who else? Ernest Hemingway. Kidding. So, uh, who legend says answered a challenge to write a story in as few words as possible. So, if you go back to high school and remember that you probably did read some Hemingway, um, his prose was shorter than the rest of his contemporary, so he was happy to take the challenge. What he ended up writing was beautiful, yet terribly sad at the same time. It's on the screen. It reads, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. And that's a powerful story in only six words. It's also a reminder that we can usually do more with less, says the guy who's going to spend 30 minutes talking about one chapter. But if you had to summarize the book of Genesis in six words, what would you write? And if you're willing, I want you to try to write a six-word summary right now. I'm not going to grade it. I'm not going to read your answer out loud or ask you to share it with somebody on your row. It's just for fun. So maybe jot it down in your study. Um, Share it with your family. Maybe share it with your small group. See where the conversation goes. See what happens. And if you're up for the challenge, just kind of tune me out for the next couple minutes and write down your answer. And and we'll come back to this idea of a six word summary in a few minutes. So for the third year in a row, I find myself preaching a, a late December message. And I choose late December mainly because it's a time of year when people are open to introspection, reflection, and self-assessment, particularly in a year like this one. I know I'm labeled the transparent guy or the vulnerable guy or the guy who spills his guts, but I promise it's not my goal to make you cry. I'm simply following where the text is taking me. We're going to see if I can get all the way through this by the end of the message. December is also Advent, and I love Advent because it reminds us that our hope is not in a calendar year. Let's not be excited that 2020 is ending. Instead, be excited that Christ is coming, both in five days and then again for his second coming. So today's text, Genesis 50, is beautiful. It's heartbreaking and heartwarming at the same time. And as we saw last week, Joseph's story is highly emotional, bathed in forgiveness, and brimming with practical application to our own lives. And as you may recall, Joseph doesn't doesn't just cry, he weeps. And as you start going through your Bible, and all of your Bible heroes, you find that most of them weep. Nehemiah, the master planner and builder, he weeps. We know from the Psalms that David weeps. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. In Acts 20.19, Paul, the author of nearly half the New Testament, writes this, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing. The Bible is a tear-stained book. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. As the kids are saying, the Bible hits different. Okay, let's take a break from all the weeping and come back to our six-word summaries. This week I asked several people to try this assignment out, and so if you were willing to write it down, you can compare your answers to theirs and see if you want to change it before you share it with other people. So they're on the screen, so we've got God has a plan for us, God's promise and plan for redemption, God's love from beginning to end, origins, journeys, and covenants with God, God created us. We messed up. God created, God obliterated, God sustains. It's nice, right? You'll also notice that I put a forward submission on the screen, And even though it doesn't fit the guidelines of the assignment, it's fitting to today's message. Because the reason I feel so lucky to, to be able to speak about this chapter is because it tells God's whole story. So we've talked about the four chapters of the Bible of God's story a lot this year. And we've spent a lot of time on creation and the fall. But today, Christmas Eve and next week, we're going to dig into redemption and consummation. So that said, let's turn to chapter 50. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bibles. And I'll be reading from the NIV. Joseph threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father, as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him the dignitaries of his court, and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Maker son of Manasseh were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land and to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. So there's a lots lots going on there, and thanks for bearing with me as I read that. And like I said earlier, given the time of year and the emotional depth of this chapter, I don't have to say much to make this chapter come alive for you. And I was an English teacher, and we would get to a beautiful text, something like The Great Gatsby. I'd tell the kids, this is like someone giving you $200,000 on your 16th birthday and telling you to pick out any car you want. The salesman just wasn't going to have to work very hard to get that sale. And so now my 12-year-old son, Eli, he's in a big car stage right now, so he's constantly scanning the roads for cool or expensive cars. And one of his favorites Is the Mercedes G-Wagon, which retails for some insane amount. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're just taking a casual test drive of a luxury automobile, the Mercedes Genesis 50 wagon. (laughs) My apologies for the dad joke. So where are we going today? Let's start with today's point, which is that God is up to good. As Christians, we believe in a sovereign God. That God is the supreme authority and that all things are under his control. So this idea is reflected in verses 2 and 3 and in the entire chapter. But I want to go back to to 2 and 3 for just a second where it says, Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. The physicians embalmed him taking a full 40 days. So the number 40 is likely the most recognizable number in the Bible. Right? So we've seen many familiar 40s. The earth was flooded for 40 days. Jesus was tempted for 40 days. The Israelites wandered the desert for 40 years. Goliath taunted the Israelites for 40 days, and there are obviously others. But the important part of these instances is that they are all connected thematically by God's promises. And they typically involve testing or trials. And in today's chapter, the promise to Joseph is connected to the next number in the passage, which is 70. I feel a little bit like a math teacher right now with all the numbers, but bear with me, I promise it will get better. So just as the number 40 indicates promise the number 70 is equated with restoration. For example, after the flood, when God restores humanity with a new beginning, the descendants of Noah's sons totaled 70. And as we read last week in Genesis 46, when Jacob returned to Egypt with his family, the total number of family members was 70. And last week, Strider mentioned this plan for 70 people that they were preserved and protected. And so this 70-day mourning period from Joseph and his family reminds us of this cycle of restoration that only God can bring. And this promise to Joseph is not just about his father. It's about restoring his family line, including his deceptive and distrustful brothers. A lot of you know the verse Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. It's a beautiful verse, but we often forget that the verse that precedes it is this. This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my promise to bring you back to this place. God is the promise keeper. And if you're a Christian, You know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And the all things is where we can get tripped up sometimes. Because we want it to be in good things. As we get to verse 10, when Joseph then sets out to bury his father, it says, When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. And we've now stumbled into the last number in that passage, which is seven. Just as the number 40 indicates promise and 70 represents restoration, the number seven implies completeness, wholeness, and yes, restoration. For example, God completed the world in seven days. And later, as a promise to Noah, he sent a rainbow, a seven-colored rainbow. Fittingly, we see Joseph shed tears seven times in Genesis. Now, before we move on to the next part of the story, and I promise you the numbers are going to go away soon, it's important to remember here that Joseph has already forgiven his brothers. Five chapters ago, when he made his identity known to them, He said, do not be distressed, God sent me ahead of you. He took them in, he protected them from the famine, and he provided a place for them to live in the best part of the land. But forgiveness is not easy, as you know well. It's not easy for the giver or the receiver. And we see this in the New Testament when Jesus teaches his disciples about forgiveness. Confused about what Jesus is teaching them, Peter asks, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus' response, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, if you're a math nerd, don't get too excited. Jesus is not a mathematician. He's not suggesting we forgive one another 490 times. Instead, he is using Old Testament imagery to remind his disciples and therefore us that offering forgiveness is not a to-do list item that you check off. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your heart so that you can release feelings of resentment or bitterness toward the person who has harmed you, regardless of whether that person actually deserves it. And to take it one step further, Colossians 3.13 says this, Bear with each other and forgive one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So the same way God restored Noah's family, and the same way God restored Joseph's family, so too should we seek to restore our relationships. And so we pick up in verse 14. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to him, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph, I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. Now remember, this walk that they're taking, it's a long one. And there's plenty of time to think and to pray. And we've seen these long and sometimes lonely walks in Genesis already. Abraham's trip to the mountains, knowing he has to sacrifice his son there. Hagar running away from Sarai until the Lord calls her back. And on these walks, there's no music to listen to. There's no podcast to digest. On these walks, you have a conversation with yourself, whoever's with you, or with God. So let's shift gears here and direct things to you for a moment whose apology are you waiting for what apology do you need to offer i might suggest to you that you take a walk and what does that walk look like well it's different for everyone for some of you it's community authentic biblical community is built in accountability And that's why our church gathers in small groups throughout the week. We discuss the Bible and the message. That's why we rehash what we've read in the Bible that week, and we ask one another how we are doing with difficult areas of the Christian walk, such as forgiveness. And we lock arms, and we pray for one another. If you don't have community like that, I encourage you to jump in. Because as difficult as it can be sometimes, It is extremely rewarding. For some of you, it might mean talking to your spouse or your parents or your brother or your sister. And it might not be one of the pleasant conversations. It might be something that's been brewing in your heart for quite some time. And for some, yet, it might mean going to a Christian counselor. Someone who is trained in conversational therapy that is rooted in God's word. I've shared before that I regularly see a Christian counselor. And what started from a place of grief has turned into a healthy cycle of working through my prayer life and sorting out what's inside my heart. Because I know I'm going to be asked the same question every month. And it's the same question that pops up on my Google calendar every single day. And it's the same question that Jesus asks his disciples in Luke 24 38. And it's this. Why is your heart so troubled? It's a similar question to what you read in Psalm 42, which we heard sung 10, 15 minutes ago. This question is so crucial because one, Jesus asks it, so it has to be important. And two, it leaves no room for ambiguity. You cannot I'm fine your way out of this question, because it assumes that something is awry in your heart. You are, after all, a human being with worries and bills and deadlines and all of that stuff. And what I've found, and why I recommend counseling to others, is that once I began learning how to bear my soul appropriately, Meaning, making sense of my frustrations rather than just venting, it allowed me to bear my soul to others. And then, most importantly, to God. In other words, counseling for me became the dress rehearsal for honest, reflective, confessional prayer to my personal and holy God. And so we pick back up in verse 18. It reads His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him we are your slaves they said now i don't know what apologies sound like in your house but this ain't no apology where i come from right and making matters worse the only forgiveness the brothers ask for is a made up story about their dead dad it's pretty gross but let's be honest joseph is no dummy He knows what's going on here, but still his compassion wins out. Verse 19, but Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done. So then don't be afraid, I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So instead of confronting his would-be murderers, he comforted them. Instead of punishing the men who sold him into slavery, which he could have done, he promised to provide for them and their children. He laid aside the awful weight of resentment and bitterness and cast his crushing, nightmarish cares upon God rather than his family. You see, what Joseph remembered is that God's story begins with creation, not the fall. And we are created in the image of our beautiful God. And to illustrate this point, I'm going to borrow an analogy from another pastor who recently described Psalm 8 as an ice cream cake. Now, if you like ice cream cake, you're gonna love this. If you don't like ice cream cake, there is absolutely no hope for you. Psalm 8 is about the majesty of the creator and the created. That's us. And this brief nine-line poem opens and closes with the same line. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So our God is one of majesty. And since we are created in his image, that means we are. Are majestic. Hooray! So majesty is the ice cream, and inside the middle of this ice cream cake psalm is line four, which begins, what is mankind? And so in this image, humans, us, were the rich, chocolatey, gooey, delicious middle part of the cake. And then look at the description of mankind. Line four ends by saying, we are crowned with glory and honor. So we are royally majestic. Congrats. Joseph gets this. He understands this. In fact, you could argue that he he maybe gets it a little too much. And depending on your personality or your stage of life, sometimes we need to remind ourselves that we are created in God's image but most of the time, we need a reminder that others are created in the image of God. So yes, you're majestic. But so is your neighbor who mows his grass at 7 a.m. <laughs> and so is the dad who walks out on his kids. And the brother who goes to jail. And the wife who does not remain faithful. What Joseph's brothers intended for evil God used for good. So do you have faith to forgive the person who has wronged you? Do you have the courage to receive what God has planned for you, however awful it might feel in the moment? Joseph did not live for his brother's apologies. Their sins against him did not hold him captive, and he knew the horrors of captivity well. He was free from bitterness and resentment, even while his brothers were silent about their guilt. And after so many difficult years of suffering and rejection, Joseph's heart was full of compassion. And so again, in verse 21, Joseph says, So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and spoke kindly to them." This parallels Jesus' heart for us. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. It's nice, right? So each week we give you an action step, something that you can apply to your life, and it's always hard for me to boil down a big chunk of Scripture to just one step. But this week it's simple, and it's, it's go to Jesus. I'm going to give you time to look through the rest of that slide there. So go to Jesus. Simply lift up your hands in your life and and say to God, today, tomorrow, and every day, today I am yours. Do with me what you will. Now, earlier I mentioned several men from the Bible who cry. But I left one person out. You can probably guess who it is. It rhymes with Jesus. I recently read a book by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And the title comes from Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 29, which reads, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. If you identify as a sinner or a sufferer, this book is for you. No other book has made me stop mid-read to pray, confess, or to thank God more than this one. And I want to highlight three quotes from this book. The first is this. Twice in the Gospels, we are told that Jesus broke down and wept. And in neither case is it sorrow for himself or his own pains. In both cases, it is sorrow over another. Another. In one case, Jerusalem, and in the other, his deceased friend, Lazarus. What was his deepest anguish? The anguish of others. What drew his heart out to the point of tears? The tears of others. And then he also reminds us, the same Christ who wept at the tomb of Lazarus weeps with us in our lonely despair. And finally, For those united to him, the heart of Jesus is not a rental. It is your new permanent residence. You are not a tenant. You are a child. Jesus' heart is the green pastures and still waters of endless reassurances of his presence and comfort. Whatever our present spiritual accomplishment, it is who he is. If you thought that was particularly beautiful writing, that book can be yours. So get yourself that book for Christmas. Get it for other people. I promise it will pull you closer to Jesus. Jesus is for the lowly. And we see this play out with his first post-resurrected words, in which he comforts a distraught Mary at the empty tomb. And I love this scene. In John chapter 20, it reads, At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. Jesus also knows your name. And he knows your tears. He knows your suffering. He knows your joys. And just as Jesus knows the answers to his questions, he knows the answers to yours. Romans 5.8 says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us. In this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He paid the penalty for our sins, and yet still he comforts us. Jesus is the fulfiller of promises, and he promises to make all things new. Through Jesus' saving work, there is a wonderful deliverance from our sin. His very heart is for sinners and sufferers like us. And through faith in him, there is eternal hope. The story of the Bible is your story. We were created in his beautiful image. We have sinned against our majestic creator and desperately need rescuing. And in going to the cross, Jesus suffered with us and for us. And ultimately redeemed our sin through his sacrifice. And finally... Just as we await his coming in five days, we long for his second coming when there will be consummation and, yes, restoration. Let's pray. God, you know us by name, and you know our suffering. You have borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You were wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, Yet by your stripes, we are healed. How often have we left you, and yet you have never left us. Turn our focus toward you. Accept us as we come to you. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen.